this. Lean into God's correction and discipline so that you will remain and abide in Christ. If there's one thing that I just want us to walk away with this morning, it's verse 7. To lean into God's direction and discipline so that you will remain and abide in Christ. And listen, I'll say this all the time. You're either in this season, you're coming into the season, or you're walking out of the season. But we're all going to walk into a difficult season. And so what the author of Hebrews is pleading is lean into that difficult season. Lean into that season of discipline. Lean into that season of correction because it's for your good. It's going to allow you to abide deeper with Christ. So the text is going to address this, but let me address this massive elephant in the room. Because when I start talking about discipline, here's what I know, because I know you. There's some of us in this room that when you hear discipline, and I'm not joking here, there's a moment of PTSD that starts to come back of how your parents disciplined in an improper way. And I don't care if you're 18 or you're 80. That, that can come, instantly come back like that. That you have a poor definition of what loving discipline looks like. So what I'm asking, what I'm pleading with you, even now in this moment, is start praying that the Lord would illuminate what true loving discipline would look like. Because there is that found in Christ, and we have to understand that. But then there's the other side, right? There's the other side of us that, that, I say us, this is not me, that didn't get disciplined. And it shows. I mean, some of you, you can tell that your mom never reached around behind their seat just hitting anything behind you. And that needs to happen, right? Some of you need to be disciplined. And if you're thinking, that's not me, that's you, right? Welcome to the branch. You need your butt whooped, all right? Can I say that out loud? No? Okay, well. Some of, you, some of you need it. Go, go move in with Debbie for a month. She'll take care of you, right? You, that's my mom. She's, she's a disciplinarian. But she made me, so y'all are, you're welcome. So there's this framework, right? There's the discipline has been too harsh, has been uh, borderline abusive, maybe even not borderline, straight up abusive. But then there's this other side where you were never disciplined. You have no framework for discipline. You were coddled and protected your whole life. So when anything hard really walks in, you don't really know how to explain it or justify it or understand it. So, so this is what I hope to see from the text really is this, uh, three different forms of discipline. So how do we know what discipline is? Uh, but the author of Hebrews really lands in on four reasons why God disciplines. There's four separate reasons why discipline is good for us, and he lists those. So uh, look back with me at verse 4 as we start to walk through this text with that framework together. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, this is where I think, and I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is one of the sentences that makes me think that Paul is responsible for Hebrews. So I think this was a Paul sermon that Timothy recorded and handed it over. Why do I say that? Because this sentence is dripping with sarcasm. Like it is just pouring out with sarcasm because he's going, look, you're, it's not that bad. Cut out the melodramatic attitude. Quit crying about it, Hebrews, Christians within Rome. You're fine. You're being ridiculous. He's saying, you have not shed any blood yet. You're fine. Grow up. Don't worry about it. This is just very appalling to me. But he's, what he's saying is true, though. We have to understand that. That he's saying, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of actual true persecution. You have not shed a single bit of blood. So you're crying, woe is me. But, but there hasn't actually been shedding of blood. There hasn't been that hard a persecution 
The suffering isn't that bad. Y'all have got to toughen up a little bit and understand this. And as I'm reading this, first I'm like, man, that's hilarious. Paul's just getting them. But that's us. That's me. Anything bad happens, my mind instantly goes to, woe is me. We're being persecuted. We're suffering for the gospel. I just don't think after Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Christ was murdered. An innocent man was murdered, but woe is me. I just don't think we can roll like that, that Christ endured all of that. He gave us the framework for that. So, so straight out of the gate, he's saying, listen, quit being melodramatic. You have not shed blood. Suffering is not that bad. But, but in a loving, gracious way, he leads us into verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Have you forgotten the written word of God that addresses you as sons? And we're going to dive into this, but what he's referring to is Proverbs 3, which is that block quotation within your scriptures. But he's saying, don't, don't you know what was written about you? Don't, don't you know what is said about you, that you are no longer slaves, that you're sons? And when we use this word sons this morning, it's a really connotation for children, right? Sons and daughters children. Have you not forgotten that you're children of God? And Hebrews 2.1, this is another theme we see throughout the book of Hebrews, says that we, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. We've got to pay attention to the scriptures that we know in the seasons of hardship, or we're going to drift away. We have to remember what it is that we know. And what is it that we know? that God is our Father, if we are believers, and we are His children. That God is our Father, and we are His children. We see this idea really developed within the book of Galatians, that He freely adopted us into the family, no longer calling us slaves, but calling us sons. We just read this in John 15, that we are His friends, that we are no longer God's enemies, that we are his friends. So, so this framework is massively important as we walk into hard seasons, because if I didn't think that my God loved me as a son, as a daughter, I would have no bearings for hardships that we walk through. If the people in Hebrews had no framework for no bearing that God is their father and he loves them more than anything else, they would have no framework for the suffering we're about to walk into. So really, we could stop the sermon right here. Do you believe what the book of Galatians says, that you've been adopted in as sons and daughters, and that the heavenly Father is perfect and he loves you unconditionally, and he's never going to do anything to harm you, but everything is for your good and for his glory? Do we believe that? And if we truly did, then, then the rest of the sermon is superfluous. It doesn't really matter because that is the root that holds everything together. But what I know about myself is the same thing that the writer knows about the Hebrews, which is probably true about us, is that how often we forget that. How often do we forget that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King that loves us, that cares for us, and is going to do whatever he can to make us holy like he is holy. And sometimes that's going to hurt, but it's for our good. So with this idea of framework, let's read this quote out of verse 5, but it's taken from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by it. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by it. 
So, so we see two ditches that the author puts up here. First, it's disdain. Do not regard it lightly. So, so when discipline comes our way, the immediate response for some of us is going to be to make it lightly. Like, oh, that's no big deal. I, that's not here to correct me. That's not here to change me. That's just happenstance. That's not actually discipline. That's just because I live in a fallen world. I don't need to change because of this. And, and the author of Proverbs said, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't view it lightly. Don't throw it off without regards. But then the other side is dismay nor be weary when reproved by him. So, so you're going to be so overburdened by what's take place that you're going to grow weary in your faith, that you're going to grow weary in pursuing the Lord. So he's saying don't disdain and don't grow weary, but stay right in the middle. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Now, there's going to be a theme that's going to be developed, and I know half the room, well, not even half the room, probably a quarter of the room is going to understand this, three-quarter of the rooms is not. But we're going to see this theme developed out, that the best thing for a parent to do for the development of their children is discipline. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Discipline is the terrible sign of being loved by God in a family relationship to Him. Discipline is the terrible sign of being loved by God and in family relationship to Him. To refuse discipline is to basically turn our back on God's love for us. So if you're not walking in discipline from the Lord, you should be concerned. Because what is the opposite of what this text is saying? That if you're not walking in discipline, you're not loved by Him. If you're not being corrected, you're not loved by him. And that should scare us. So, so back when I played high school baseball, right, the coach was a jerk. I think every baseball coach was just an awful human being. Uh, but there was one practice in particular where I remembered he was super kind to me. It's like, that's, that's weird. Like, did we get over that hard shell of a man? You see, I'm actually a good kid and trying hard. Like, maybe we're going to be friends. And then the next day he was nice to me. And then the next day, he was nice to me, very kind, wasn't chewing me out, wasn't yelling at me while dip spit was coming down his face, wasn't cussing me out like he was the other players. He was, he was just super generous. So, like, man, this is, this is great. We have a great relationship going on. Here's what I didn't know, is that he had already made up the mind to cut me from the team. So he didn't have to discipline me. He didn't have to yell at me. He didn't have to rebuke me, because to, to him, I was nothing anymore. See, when the correction isn't there, when the discipline isn't there, the relationship isn't there. So if we don't have discipline coming from God the Father, then, then the hard question that we've got to ask is what we see in verse 6, that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And if we aren't being disciplined, then are we loved or are we still an enemy of God, sinning openly against him, running from him, not submitting to his lordship? And then we see all this tied together in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It's for discipline that you have to endure. So, so what are the frameworks or what are the different examples of discipline that we see through the Scriptures? And, and there's many, uh, but we're going to narrow this down to three. The first one that we see is corrective discipline. 
And this one should make sense to us. So God will uh, institute discipline, correction, rebuke in our life when it is that we need to be corrected. So when we are walking in sin, we are turning our backs on him. When we are walking in a dangerous direction, God the Father, in his love for us, will offer corrective discipline. And, And probably the most infamous story of this is King David, right? King David sees a beautiful woman. He has an affair. He impregnates this woman. So then he has her husband killed so that he can cover up the affair. Do you think that King David need to be corrected? Do you think that, I mean, this is, a, this is a crucial point for you. If you don't think that King David needs to be corrected, I don't know that we're the right church for you. Let me ask that again. Do you think that King David needs to be corrected for his sin? There we go. Man, y'all are killing it this morning. So, so King David, in his adultery, in his murder, had to be corrected. And so he did. His son raped his half-sister, David's daughter. Right? I mean, have you read the stories that takes place after this event in David's life? His son did that to his daughter. One son murdered another son. That son tried to overthrow King David and rule and reign in his place, have David murdered. There's this corrective discipline that's taking place because of the sins of what David did. But what does David say about this? We see in Psalm 119, he says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I was going astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statuses, that I might learn your word. It was good. It was a good thing that God the Father loved me enough to correct me and discipline so that now I will not go astray. We also see this in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two that when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So that when we get corrective discipline, it is a loving, good thing for us because left to our own devices, we're going to screw everything up. Left to our own devices, we're going to mess everything up. We, we, we often think so highly of ourselves, right? That, man, I, I've got this. If, if God would just let me do this, I've, I've got this. What we're basically saying is, hey, two-year-old, here's the keys to my car. Go to the grocery store. That, that's who we are. Don't, don't think how more highly of ourselves. Left our own devices, we're literally giving the keys to a two-year-old and saying, drive, kid. You got this. There's going to be distraction and wake everywhere. So the corrective discipline we see totally makes sense. But the next two get a little bit more difficult. And you'll see what I mean. The next one we see is preventative discipline. Preventative discipline. So a loving father will correct after the sins have taken place, but a loving father will also correct before the discipline needs to take place, before the correction needs to take place. And again, as parents, we see this all the time. I know this is going to end badly. Let me rebuke you now. I see the kids, my kids running to the street. Let me stop you before you get hit by the car. Because then I'm going to have to discipline you while you're laying in the street. Son, you shouldn't have ran out in the car. shouldn't have run out on the road. Didn't you know it was going to happen? That, that's not. So, so preventative discipline is pulling them out before that takes place. And the most obvious, again, there's plenty of examples, but the most obvious one we see is in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul is literally talking about the thorn in his flesh. Y'all familiar with this? So 2 Corinthians 12, we'll pick it up in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So, so Paul, and there's a lot of theories about what this, this thorn in the flesh could have been. But what Paul is saying is there, there's a thorn in the flesh in me, whether it be poor eyesight, whether it be a stomach condition, something that held him back. And he sees now that the only reason that he had that thorn in the flesh was to keep him from being conceited, to keep him from being so uh, confident, so full of himself that that thorn in the flesh was a preventative discipline. Why? Because it kept him humble. And I don't know, have y'all, has anyone heard the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? A few people. Maybe check it out if you want to. You don't have to. But the rise and fall of Marcel is just a, a, it's a remarkable story. It's about a church that, that was planted in Seattle by a 26-year-old, and the thing just blew up, right? I mean, blew up to 10, 12 campuses, thousands of people attending all these campuses. Well, when the pastor resigned for moral failure and some pride and arrogance going on, the church literally within nine weeks closed down. All the campuses, the main campus, everything, nine weeks closed down. So this podcast is really going back and going, okay, what in the world happened in the world of multi-campus and video venues and celebrity pastors, let's do a post-mortem to see what actually killed this church. And, and you start listening to it. Here, here's the main theme for me, at least, the main takeaway from this. This pastor, Mark Driscoll, who, who was influential in me even getting into ministry, was being flown around the world to preach the gospel at 27. At 27. I mean, this dude had a supernatural gift from the Lord and at 27 was raised into celebrity status. And as one pastor said, his character uh, was not big enough for his confidence. That his character wasn't there. So quickly, everything turned into Mark. Well, Mark's the greatest. Well, Mark's the greatest. Well, well, Mark's the big deal. And then he slowly over time started believing that, buying into that. Well, I am the big deal. Look at what I've accomplished. And so pride and arrogance started ruling, and then the church fell apart. And so I'm listening to this and some of the things that Mark did. I've just been so grateful, so grateful that the Lord did not, because we planted this church when we were 26, did not give me that kind of platform because I would not have been able to handle it. I'm so glad that the Lord sent us to Dahlonega, Georgia. I was literally on the phone this week with someone and they said, how do you, how do you say, what was it, Dahlonega? I'm like, no, don't ever say that again. Dahlonega. If you can't say it, just spell it, but don't try, Right? Dahlonega, Dahlonega. That, that no one really cares about us up here, that we haven't had this incredible, we're on this fastest growing church list, and look how many of this, and look how many of that, and, oh, Gabe, you're the greatest. You know why? Because I could not handle it. I know me. I like me. And if I got that kind of notoriety, it would end badly for all of us. So I'm so grateful that the Lord has made the last seven years of the church just a grind. I mean, just nitty-gritty, painful ministry work because I needed that preventative discipline. I would not have been able to handle that kind of growth or explosion as a 27-year-old. And I would argue no one can. So, so we see this. We see corrective discipline. We see preventative discipline. And lastly, we see educational discipline. Now, if there's one that you're going to see that you're going to have a really hard time with, this is going to be it. All right, so just, I want you to see this with your own eyes. If you have your Bible, go to the book of Job. If you're familiar with the book of Job, you know where I'm going to go. Because educational discipline is probably the hardest one to define. 
we can look back in our lives and see preventative discipline take place. We can see corrective discipline take place. But educational discipline is that this is just hard to understand. Because we see right at the beginning of Job, Job 1.1. Job 1.1. We see that Job was blameless and upright. Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away evil. Job was good. Job was doing the right things. Then Satan comes in, and we know the story. Satan comes in, hey, let me have this guy. God set some parameters. He's not going to turn his back on me. Go. Go for it. So he does, right? He destroys property, destroys his family, destroys Job's health, does everything but does not do what God says he couldn't do, which is take Job's life. He just goes after it. And so the whole book of Job is about this experience and what's going on. But, but at Job 42, at the very end of this, this is how Job responds to the educational discipline that takes place. This is how Job responds. Then Job answered to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So here's Job who fears God, who is in all sense of the words, perfect. And Job's confession at the end of the book is Job, is I did not, I, I did not understand, I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and make it known to you. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. For Job's example, we understand that discipline might not come from poorly executed lifestyle, but it might come so that we can know him deeper. So, So when we're going through life, when we're going through a season of discipline, it's not preventative. It's not corrective. Maybe, just maybe, it's so that we can come to a deeper more loving, more robust relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Father. Maybe that's the purpose of discipline. Maybe God is leading us through a hard season just for that, to educate us more on who He is. James Moffat puts it this way, to endure rightly, one must endure intelligently. To endure rightly, one must endure intelligently. So we see the correction of David, the prevention of Paul, and the education of Job. That is the sanctifying work of God the Father, disciplining us for our good and for his glory. But then the author goes into four reasonings for our discipline. Why is this taking place? What is the reasoning that we're having to lean into humble discipline so that we will remain or abide in Christ? And let's pick it up in 7b. Sorry, go back to Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 7b. The first reason that we see is a paternal reason, that God is treating you as sons. That's what verse 7 says. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So he's saying, listen, this is what a father does. The paternal responsibility is disciplining of their children. 
And we see this in the ancient Near East and the ancient culture, that this idea would be foreign, that if a parent does not discipline their children, if a son does not discipline his children, that's a foreign idea to them. They had no framework for it. So, so we could look into the history of discipline, but, but what if we just looked right now? I mean, what happens when kids graze up in a home without a father disciplining them? That's a great question. Let's look at it. Because in the U.S. right now, one-third of kids have no access to their father. One-third of kids in the U.S. right now have no access to their father. That means 24.7 million live in a home where their biological father isn't present. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 85% of youth in prison grew up in fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway kids are from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. And 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. If we don't get the discipline from the Lord, we're going to be these statistics. It is a loving, paternal thing for God to lead us into seasons of discipline because that's what's best for us. That left to our own devices, we're going to destroy us and everything around us. That a paternal, good, loving father must discipline us. And we see this happen twice within Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him diligently is to discipline him. And Proverbs 29. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but children left to himself bring shame to his mother. So God is not evil or wicked because he disciplines us. No, quite the contrary. He is a good, loving father. That's why we need discipline. Because I don't know about you, but I know me. And if I don't have corrective rebuke in my life, things are not going to end well. And this is what God the Father does for us. But he goes on to look at verse 9, which is a, a lesser to greater argument. Besides this, verse 9, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So he's saying, look, you had discipline from your earthly fathers and you love them and you respect them and you've grown into the person that you are because of that. If that's true from a sinful human being, how much more, how much greater is it going to be for God the Father, the perfect one, to discipline us, to instruct us, to lead us into humility? How much better is it going to be? So not only is it good for the earthly fathers to do this, but it's going to be so much greater coming from the heavenly Father. Third, we see a sanctifying reason in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. If you're a writer, circler, underliner, that's the one you want to circle. Why does God discipline us for our good? So that we may share in his holiness. So Jesus gives us this command, right? Be holy as I am holy. Well, how in the world am I supposed to be holy? Do, do not sin. How in the world am I not supposed to sin? I mean, I, I don't even want to know how many times I've sinned today. Just today. I mean, I'm not talking, and I, oh, preacher, aren't you preaching? Yeah. And it's been a sinful morning. Trust me. I'm tired. I ran a 5K yesterday. It was my first one. Thanks, Jackie. It was incredible. And then I had bad peer pressure to go convince me to do a CrossFit workout after that. I'm tired. We've got sick kids. It has been a sinful morning. I might have thought some bad things about my wife. 
because she was supposed to give me a bag when I was leaving the house, and I had to turn around halfway to church, go back and get the bag, and come here. So maybe not all those thoughts about my wife were great this morning. Oh, we can't have real talk. You're going to look at me like y'all didn't sin this morning? All right. I'll start calling your sin soon. Right? I mean, that's just who we are. So, so don't we see, don't we understand that to get us to where we need to be, the only way to do that is discipline. And we can take this out of the realm of spirituality and we can put this anywhere else. To be the best employee that you need to be, isn't there a level of discipline? To be the best athlete that you want to be, isn't there a level of discipline? To be the best student, isn't there a level of discipline? So to be holy like Christ has called us to be holy, to be sanctified, to be the best version of ourselves, shouldn't we walk in this humbling, corrective discipline from the Lord? And lastly, we see this in verse 11. The last reason is the bearing of fruit. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I think we could read that about a thousand times. For the moment, in the moment, and we all need to lean into this and hear this, the discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It, reads, it leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we talked about this some a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, this is literally putting our seed in the ground, right? Putting our seed to death so that it can germinate and it can grow into a massive fruit tree. It's going to be painful in the moment. So, so how do we persevere? In the moments of pain, in the moments of true hurts, how do we persevere to knowing that there's going to be fruit bared from this one day. I'll say we go no other place in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be murdered, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be crucified on the cross. He, he did that. Why? For the fruit. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might receive the adoption of sons, so that we might be saved, so that we might understand salvation. So what is the fruit of the most difficult season of the life of Jesus Christ? Us. It's us in this room this morning that if Christ would not have died, as Paul says, we should be pitied among most because we have no hope, we have no future, we have no life because of what Christ did, because of the discipline, the endurance, the suffering that he had. Look at the fruit of it. Millions upon millions upon millions of Christians worldwide because of the sacrifice that Christ made. So, so when we're going through this really difficult season that is more painful than pleasant, where do we look to? Well, Hebrews 12, 1 told us. We look to none other than the author and perfecter of our faith, King Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's us. We're going to have some painful, not pleasant seasons. And it's going to be some level of discipline, suffering, corrective, preventative, educational, who knows in the moment. But it's happening for our good. Church, we've got to lean into God's correction and discipline so that we will endure, so that we will abide, so that we will remain. So I want to read, and I think it's going to be on the screen, a, a longer quote, that's why it's going to be up here, that just hopefully summarizes this main point. And then I've got 
We'll talk to three different people in this room, and then we'll pray and be out of here. It follows that when we face suffering of any kind, we should use the occasion for self-examination. God may be speaking to us in the language of a wise heavenly father who disciplines those he loves. Such discipline may be God's response to specific sins in our lives. It may be a more general way of toughing us up in the broken world so that we will stop thinking that God owes us good health and that our clean living, organic food guarantees us a long and robust life. Or it may be that God has a bet going on with Satan himself. Think about Job. So our self-examination ought to be honest, and any repentance should be forthright. But we should not whip ourselves into thinking that the crippling accident that we just endured was a function of our sin. Even if it were, the remedy is always the same. Flee to the cross and trust our good and gracious and holy God. It is not inconceivable that we may conclude with Job that the suffering cannot be God's punishment for specific sins in our lives. So, going into the season, you're in the season, you're coming out of the season of corrective discipline. Do not waste it without some self-examination. What is the Lord trying to teach you? So, I've talked about this a few times over the last year, but we're coming out a year ago. My wife was in the accident, was in the hospital for a month. And, and this is the common refrain that my wife and I would say about this time last year when she came home and she was doing great and everything was working perfectly. Here's the this, here's this phrase that would always come out. Um, we're so grateful that God led us through that season. It was the hardest season of our life. We're so grateful that God led us through that season. But, but we want to make sure we learn all that God has for us from that season because we don't want to do it again. Right? We're so grateful We're so close to the Lord because of it. We've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. But God, what else do you want us to learn? Because please don't take us back there. Don't ever let that happen again. And there's so much through that self-examination, through that framework of what is it that you want us to learn? And and I hate to admit, it was me. It it was me. We've, We've talked about this. It was me. That I was in a season of depression and my wife had become my idol. She had become my comfort. She had become my all in all. I was not turning to the word of God for comfort. I was not turning to the love of the Father for comfort. I was turning to my wife. We would sit there and play Mancala for hours. I just wanted to be with her. That was the only comfort I had in this life. It was an act of corrective discipline. God said, hey, this isn't good for you. This isn't good for us. This isn't good for the church. So I'm going to take your wife and I'm put her in a hospital for 30 days. There's no other framework for that than, than this. And was that the best thing for me? 100%. Was that the best thing for the Lord? 100%. Was that the best thing for my children? 100%. Because it took all of our eyes off of everything else and put them solely on King Jesus, the good Father that did this for us, for our good, for our benefit, for our joy. So there's three people that I just want to address real quick. The first ones are this. You have no clue what I'm talking about. You, you, I mean, genuinely, you're listening to me. You're going, I've never gone through a hard season. My parents are good. My life is good. I've never really walked through a difficult season. I don't, I don't really know this instruction, this discipline. I, I just don't know. Well, here would be my advice. Be ready. Be, be ready, and, and not in a negative sense. Be, be ready in a positive sense. That when the dominoes start to collapse, Lean in. 
run in, rush into what the Lord has for you in that difficult season. And, and dare I even say, ask for it. Pray for it. If this is the best thing for us to grow in our faith, maybe start praying that way. The second one is this. Those who are carrying some bitterness or resentment for things that have happened in the past. That you've gone through that season of discipline and you could tell me with tears in your eyes how a loving God could not have done that. How a good God should not have done that. My prayer for you is that you can see through this text and through the Word of God, but you're not a slave, you're not a stranger, you're a son, you're a daughter, and, and trust me, God did that for your good. It was not an accident. I, my prayer would just be that you would press into that, you would lean into that. And the last one is this, you're in the season right now. I mean, when we read verse 11, you felt it in your bones you felt it deep within you that you're in a season of pain, not of pleasant. That the hurt is real. Here's what I would say. Two, two things for you. Trust God and lean on us. Trust God and lean on us. This is where the church should be the church. To hold your hand, to make you meals, to support you, to encourage you, to love you, to pray with you through this difficult season of discipline. But we won't know unless you tell us. Unless you show up to a family group broken and say, here's where I am, we, we can't help. We're, we're not mind readers. Some of you ladies are, I think. But most of us, we're not mind readers. You've you got to open up tell us in the church is staying ready to serve. Trust me, going through this last season, last year what Brie and I went through, this church serves well. This church loves incredibly well. We've got kids, college students in here that will grab your kids and go play with them. We've got some of y'all that can cook incredible meals. We've got people with checkbooks ready to serve and help however we can. But until you open up and admit that you're in a season of pain, not of pleasantness, we, we don't know. So if you're in that season, join a family group, open up, be honest. But for all of us, let's just be grateful that God loves us enough to discipline us, to correct us, to make us more like his son for the good of us and for the glory of God. For that, we can rejoice because he doesn't have to. He could leave us alone. He could leave us to our own devices, but he chooses to get into the mess with us to correct us and to love us. So let us lean into God's correction and discipline so that we will remain and abide in Christ forever. So let's pray. Father, we in this moment are just grateful to call you Father. We hope that those aren't just words off our lips, but we actually mean it. We, we run to you as a father. We love your discipline as a father. We believe what you say because you're our father. And we know that you ultimately love us and care for us because we're your sons and daughters. Why would you do anything different? That if an earthly father knows how to give good gifts, that an earthly father knows how to discipline right, then, then we should be able to trust that our Heavenly Father does it perfectly. And so God, would you give all of us the courage this morning to lean into seasons of discipline, 
to lean into seasons of hardship, to not grow weary, to not grow burdened, to not grow pessimistic, to not play the woe is me card, to press in, to say, Lord, what do you have for me here in this season? Because you discipline us, because you love us. You rebuke us because you love us. You lead us through hard, difficult seasons because you care for us. Father, would that just be ingrained into our hearts, ingrained into our minds, ingrained into our lives. We would forever and always have that framework that no matter what we're going through, it's for our good, it's for your glory, it's because you love us. And we can't give the answers and we don't know what kind of discipline it is and when it's going to end and why it's here. We can't answer any of that. But what we can answer is that you love us as the perfect Father, and you're doing this for our good. So for those in this season of pain right now, this is for your good. Would you open up to us? Would you allow us to help bear these burdens? For those that are dealing with bitterness and resentment, Spirit, we just ask that you would remove that from them this morning. And for those that have never walked into the season of discipline, of rebuke, of correction. Jesus, we pray that you would prepare their hearts and get them ready, that they know that it's only a gift from you. So, Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Thank you for loving us. It's your name we pray. Amen.